0: Jerry Colonna is the author of one of the must-read leadership books of the year, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Prior to launching his executive coaching practice, Jerry was a venture capitalist in New York City. The fund he co-founded, Flatiron Partners, made investments in early internet companies like GeoCities and Seth Godin's Dime. It's not often that the guest starts coaching the host on a podcast episode, but that's what makes Jerry perfect for a show called Where Others Won't. Jerry Colonna, how are you, my friend? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I've been looking forward to this for some time. I'm glad we could get on the phone together. Let's just jump straight in here. I'm I'm big on words meaning something. And there was a scene in Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee where Jerry Seinfeld goes through his theory of the difference between a comedian and a comic and a comedic actor. And he kind of has all these frameworks for for which is which. And and I think the same is a little bit true of coaching and you identify yourself as a coach and you could be a million different things. You've had successes in a whole range of different things. Why is it important for you that you identify yourself as a coach?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I'm not sure the answer. Uh, Let me think about it for a second. I think, I think it helps me understand what I'm not Mm -hmm. meaning. uh, I'm not a mentor and I'm not a therapist and I'm not a consultant. Um, And I'm certainly not from my old days, an investor or a board member, and I'm certainly not a colleague. And so I guess by process of elimination, what I do is at its core, is, um, what I would define as coaching. And, um, and yet, uh, by identifying that, which I am not, I am acknowledging that occasionally I I bring those in. Mm -hmm. So how's that for a complicated response? (laughs) That's pretty good
0: off a whim. I'll give Mm you that. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I've been thinking about this a lot and it, it means a lot to me. And, you know, we coach in different realms. I coach sport, um, although ultimately a lot of the same principles apply. And, and I've thought a lot about that as well, about how I identify myself. And and even further than that, you know, as we look into how positions are labeled, one of the arguments that I made in, in my book was that there's a lot of roles in the corporate world that probably should be a coach. And, and that's because that then inherently becomes the role and not one task within the role. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, I like to ask that because I don't think too many people think about it like that. And I think it is
1: important, uh, as you said, cause there's a whole range of different things that you could be. I, I think that I think you're right. And I think that, um, when I get into what I call coach mode, it's a way of reminding myself that I should, uh, lead to the degree that I lead the conversation. I should lead the conversation with questions and not answers Mm -hmm. and that I should, um, hold myself empathetically and listen as closely and as fully as possible. Um, and that said, everything that one does as a coach is totally applicable one does as a a, a leadership coach which is how i would define myself mm-hmm. um which it, it are, are similar to things that one might do say as a relationship partner or as a parent or as a positional leader in an organizational um leaders who lead by asking questions are going to be uh, inherently more scalable and more effective than those who presume that they're supposed to have all the answers and they're just supposed to um, pour that infinite knowledge and wisdom into the brains of their employees.
0: And what drew you to this discipline? Like I said, you know, and anyone who's read your book or followed your career knows that you could be a lot of things like we just talked about, you could identify as a whole range of different things. You could be in a whole range of different disciplines, but what was it that really drew you to this as, you know, as part of your life journey
1: or your life resume, if you will? Um, I think it was a sense that, uh, you know, if we go back in time, we talk about sort of say my break from venture capital, which was my second or third career depending on how you count things. Um, As successful as I was as a venture capitalist, um, it did not feel true to me. It it didn't feel false, but it didn't feel true the way one might true a wheel, Mm. meaning it it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't in alignment. The inner and the outer weren't in alignment. And, um, and when I began coaching, it was as an adjunct to a bunch of other work that I was doing. Um, and it emerged over a series of years that I was predominantly and then exclusively a coach. And now when you know you think about my when I think about myself as an author or I think of myself as a business leader, it's infused and informed by this the identification as leadership coach as coach. Um, So I would make the argument that what led me to it was the misalignment that I was experiencing. What kept me in it was the realization that the more deeply I went into it, the more true I felt. Fantastic.
0: I think I've experienced parts of that as well. And mm. in particular with my journey and, and we'll talk about our journeys, um, after this, cause I want to get into yours, um, more specifically and, and touch on your book as well. But, you know, I was a, a high level football player and my only dream in life was to be drafted into the AFL, mm. um, the Australian football league. And so that didn't right. happen and then really fell out of love with basically everything life in general. I was coasting mm. for a long time until I got mm. back into coaching mm. and realized there was an opportunity to um, not only continue in the game and pass on the knowledge and the skills and everything, but also for me, it was the, the, uh, the realization that I could care about 30 people on the squad more than I'd any, Never cared about anything else in my life. And mm-hmm. the only time I've ever had sleepless nights is in coaching when I, you know, pre-game when I'm just thinking about have I prepared everyone well enough and are they set up for success? And like you said earlier, there's elements like parenting and different things in there. And, and that's really revolutionized not only my, my footballing career, but also just my life in general, coming to some of those realizations um, reasonably early on. Do you still play? Not anymore. Hmm. No, I gave that up a couple of years ago so that I could really keep, um, tabs on, on the coaching and, and do that properly. I felt I was half assing a little bit. Um, and, and yeah, so I, not only that, there was elements of, I started to become scared. And so I'd always said to myself, when that's the case, you're more likely to hurt yourself and hurt others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wasn't able to really put myself in those, you know, going at hundred uh, percent circumstances. And so I'd always told myself in my head, that's ta- the time to give it up.
1: And, and if I, if I, can I, I slip into a little bit of that coach mode I was talking about? Please before? do. Um, when I asked you the question, Are you still playing? There was a little hitch in your voice. What were you feeling? Mm.
0: To be honest, I was, I don't even associate with that person anymore. Um, Mm. with the person that was the player. Yeah. It just feels like so long ago. It was two, two years ago, really, Mm. that I gave it up. Mm Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. It was almost like recalling a different person mm-hmm. to try to answer the question, if that makes
1: sense. It makes total sense to me. It mm-hmm. makes total sense to me. And so now you care about 30 people on the pitch. Mm-hmm. How does that feel when I say, when I, when I reflect that back to you?
0: It feels like nothing else,
1: to be honest to you.
0: Again, little things that, that seem like they would be a nuisance like the sleepless nights are actually the, the part that I love about it mm. um, and hadn't realized that that was a possibility. When you're a player, you're so in your own head. There's, there's one dimension. It's, you know, you, you're always, yes, you want the best for the team, but ultimately you want to play well, mm. particularly on, in, in any sort of sports endeavor. And that's kind of how you're coached. Uh, mm. Whether that's by your parents or the, the coach that you're working with at the time, whatever it may be. But that switch for me w- was just, I never thought I could give that much of a shit about anything. Or anyone else. Or anyone else. Uh, or so many people. Mm. And, and so, yeah, it was very profound for me and really impacted not just my sporting life, like I said, but also my career aspirations and, and the language that I use about myself. I wanted to call myself a leader and a coach after that. Cause I said, I am this, I do give a shit. And uh, people might have other titles that, you know, higher up the food chain, but that
1: doesn't mean that they give a shit. And so, um, being a leader means giving a shit. It does. Hmm. It does. And,
0: and I think it means, you know, the, you know, you, uh, about everyone and, and wanting to move everyone from point A to point B, whatever that is for them. Uh, it's not always going to be what we define as success, I think, but you're looking to move everyone forward. And, you know, even going back to, I wrote about this in my book, that the idea of coach like the word coach comes from stagecoach. Hmm. and that idea of, you know, providing a, an easier way for someone to get from point A to point B. Hmm. And so I, you know, I've latched onto little things like that. And, and they're my checks and balances. I think for myself as a coach is am I helping here from, from point A to point B? Cause I do hmm. care. So then am I, am I coming with help as well? Hmm. I know you've talked about this a lot. The idea of, unpacking our personal baggage as part of this experience of leadership and coaching. Um, and you know, the, the intrinsic side of leadership as well. It's not just, you know, what comes out, but the health that you need to have internally, Hmm. Um, where, where does that come from? How did you come to that realization that that was a really key part of your methodology? And then in reality, everyone's leadership journey.
1: Well, let, let, let me replay it and reflect it back and construct it a little bit. Um, here's the way I would sort of think about it. Um, leadership as a journey is incredibly difficult. Um, it it uh, prompts in us a kind of introspective, or, or more specifically, it, it brings up in us All sorts of challenges, um, fears, sense of inadequacy, imposter syndrome, uh, a loneliness, um, a confusion around uh, not knowing what the answer is and what to do. And every one of those uh, emotional components of the leadership experience is an opportunity for us to confront deeper issues within our own selves. And so therefore, i realized both mostly by observing my own journey, but intimately observing the journeys of my clients, that those folks who are willing to confront the issues that um, arise are then able to grow as human beings themselves. And by the way, we're going to circle back to you, my friend. (laughs) because I think that this is true for you. And then those leaders and those who have positional or role power who are willing to confront those issues end up leading better. Now, I want to come back to you for a moment. What I heard was that there was this moment, which you described as in which you you were, that the fear became stronger. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Yes. As a player, yeah. As I, a the fear, as a player. Yeah. And and you were confronted with a choice. You could have walked away from the pitch altogether. Mm-hmm. How old were you, may I ask?
0: 30, 33. I'm 35 yeah. now. I was 33 when this happened.
1: Right, right, right. Because the, the, the poem Minute 40 by Donald Justice is in my mind. And it begins with, Men at 40 learn to close softly the doors to rooms they will not be coming back to. Hmm. There's something that happens starting in our 30s into our 40s where the life that we constructed, usually in our 20s, but beginning in our teen years, starts to crumble. And so you said something really powerful. You said the fear. Well, I'm imagining that you've been playing football since you were a teenager at least. Is that right? Earlier. Earlier. Uh, Earlier. Probably you seven. So, okay, right, right. So it became a defining character trait. In fact, when I asked you to recall the time before, you, you, you looked at it through this sort of long lens as if it was a completely different life. It was so long ago, i.e. Mm-hmm. two years ago. <laughs> and then there was a fear. And I'm imagining the fear was both physical, I'm gonna get hurt, but really existential, because that's what fear is, right? It's a threat to my essence, it's a threat to my existence. Totally. And I'm imagining, were you afraid when you first walked onto the pitch at seven?
0: Oh, no, not at all.
1: So somewhere between seven and 33, the fear took hold, became deeper and deeper. Perhaps because the stakes grew higher. Perhaps because what was at risk was more important than it used to be. And then you did something really dramatic. You stepped into a leadership position. What was that transition like?
0: Well, that had always been coming. And, you know, I'd I'd been coaching and playing for some time and dabbling and and starting to write about coaching and leadership. And that's how I got into writing books and and then transitioning my career. So it was, it was part of a process that probably started well before that moment and then just culminated in, um, you know, I, I'd had time to think about my style of leadership and and what I wanted to do and the types of challenges that I wanted to address and whether that was, you know, team coaching or individual coaching or mentoring or all the things you listed before that you could Mm. be, Mm. I'd I'd had time to really suss them out and, and look at them. Um, so it was actually quite a smooth process, but the, uh, yeah. And it certainly made it easier to let go of, you know, Cody version 1.0.
1: Mm. So, you know, what I'm envisioning is, uh, you know, a snake shedding his skin and creating, you know, and having a new skin cause they've outgrown it or, you know, you know, an adult, uh, needing a new set of clothes and the clothes you slipped into fit you better than in the last year or two of the old suit of the old clothes. Um, and so to take it back to your question about my transition, I coach and so therefore I am called a leadership coach this is who I am this is a this this is this is me being me yes Um, and so therefore I'm the luckiest man on the planet because I get paid to be me (laughs) right now you just smiled you, you, you said yes and then you just left and I bet you you resonate with both of those statements This is you being you when you're coaching, uh, you know, a squad of 30. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I I think, you know, in a similar fashion, yours has been a journey deeper and deeper into being your true self. Does that resonate?
0: It absolutely has. And and again, the, the impact of that has been so profound and so widely spread across my life. And and that's why I'm resonating with what you're saying is that it's not just one thing. It's not one part of my identity. And, and uh, <laughs> it's interesting because I stood up at a coaching conference in Las Vegas for other sports coaches recently back in April. And, and I gave a talk about, they asked me to talk about talent optimization and so i 'm standing in front of a hundred coaches from NHL NFL global rugby you know the, the the top of the top and and what I spoke about was this idea that we understand from an athlete perspective the the pinnacles of human performance and the holistic nature of it and how it can 't just be athletic there 's a mental side to it there 's a a connection side to it and um, you know, we, we know that people need to go home and see their husbands and wives and kids, and they need to nurture that environment and they, you know, need maybe a side endeavor and, and whatever it else is, it is in their life. There needs to be all these different elements, mm-hmm. not just the, the technical and the tactical skills and the, you know, uh, are your hamstrings strong enough to sustain the load and all that sort of scientific stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the leaders of those sports organizations, took none of that advice. They never went home to see their wives and kids. And, you know, we, we glorify the idea of the NFL coach that sleeps at the stadium mm. and doesn't go home and maybe sees his kids twice a year or, you know, eats a terrible diet because they're working so hard. And, and so w- this is why I really wanted to speak to you because I, I see a lot of what you've written about and, and that, that holistic approach to, to being a leader and it's it starting within you. Um that, that I think is really underexplored um not just in, in the you know the, the CEO landscape and the executive landscape in business, but across the sphere.
1: Yeah, well I was smiling deeply as you were describing that and smiling in recognition and relationships. You know, I don't work necessarily with athletes, um, although my son is a Muay Thai fighter. Um But this notion of leaving it all in the field, this notion of depleting yourself and emptying the tank, um, is incredibly common in in business. Mm -hmm. And um, the the belief system is that anything less than that means uh, failure. And um, what I find I have to do, and I'm curious if you find this as well, What I find I have to do is really challenge assumptions around what the definition of success is. Um, You know, we're both talking about measuring success by output and uh, output in, in kind of a bursty fashion. And, you know, just as an, as an amateur fan, I will tell you that one of my favorite um, teams was the 1998 Yankees. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. I know it's going to upset people. <laughs> and the reason for, the, for that is, and this is pure projection. I have no way of knowing what it was like in the locker room there, but it felt as a young fan that there was a much greater interest in the team than there was in the individual. And there was a much greater love for the sport than there was for the win. And when you look at some of the great players, now Hall of Famers, like Mariano Rivera, what you see is a kind of well-managed ego that I would argue came from Joe Torre, the manager. You know, the Buddha who would sit on the bench, sort of unflappable in the face of wins and losses, versus say the manager that I grew up with watching, Billy Martin, who was insane. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, the analogy sort of holds here, which is that we, 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 we do a kind of terrible disservice to people in this pursuit for outcome. And it doesn't necessarily result in long-term sustained success. Remember those 98 Yankees up until that time won more games in a particular season than any other previous game in history and team in history. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they loved the game. Yeah. Right. They loved playing. Um, And I think that when you, when you talk about the, the folks who were in the audience for your talk, I wonder if some of them have lost touch with the love that compelled them in the first place to be involved in the sport. I would suggest so. And, uh, uh, you know, I would go even
0: further than that and say, it's probably one of the most misunderstood areas of professional sport is everyone banters around the money, you know, for players, especially, they make X amount. Mariano Rivera makes X amount. So of course he should love the game and he should display these behaviors. And I can tell you that's a hundred percent, not the case for, to be honest, way more uh, than you think. In, let's call it the 90% range. Mm. and it, it is a job for most of the athletes that you watch on television in any sport. Mm. And they are in it because they were good at it and uh, it became a career because uh, they were winning. Not necessarily sure why they were winning, uh, but were good at it probably ended up with some sponsors. It kept the ball rolling, but mm-hmm. the reality is it's a job just like you and me going to work from nine to five every day. And, and so, yeah, I think getting back to to what you were saying and that love of the process and, and that actually becoming what defines an individual or a team. I'm really interested in, in that as well, particularly as it pertains to sustained success. So mm-hmm. how do we create that and, and how do we get to the root cause of it? Because I can tell you it's not wins mm. and it never will be. Mm. If that's how well, you're going to define yourself, you are not on the path to sustain success.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I relate to what you're describing, uh, you know, a few weeks back, someone asked me about, you know, um, working right and in, in, in the work that I do. And, you know, I've already established that I'm lucky because I get to, I get to get paid for doing the thing that I love. Right. Well, an extension of that is I can't really ever envision not doing this thing that I love. I can envision the form changing. I can envision perhaps someday teaching and perhaps someday not necessarily having, you know, a company, um, um, at this point in my life, I'm hoping to build upon the success of this book and have, you know, another half dozen books after this. But the reality is every one of those things is an expression of my joy and my love. And that sustains me. And I'm envisioning that that sustains me until well into my 90s or longer. Um, And uh, when I think about an alternate way of being in relationship to work, whether your work is on a football pitch or whether your work is in a corporate cubicle. The alternate experience is a kind of soul deadening experience. Um, Or, 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 or usually it's more like a life deferred thing. I will put up with this misery until fill in the blank. (laughs) And then finally I'll be happy. And i don't know that this is true but when i watch an athlete who is performing out of joy when they're you know like my younger son uh uh, did track and field in high school and the notion of the personal best was incredibly important where the competition was himself more than anything else right Mm -hmm. um you know to do you know he would call me up hey dad i pr'd i you know, my personal record, right? The notion that that, and that gave him joy to know that he pushed himself to perform his best, regardless of how the competition did. Now there's even a joy in the squad competing well, but it's different. We're talking about something very, very different than those who are motivated by extrinsic external affirmation an award approbation applause from fans or money. Speaking of
0: money, one of the things that you talk about in your book and your book's called reboot is the idea of how relationships, you know, individual relationships to money get formed and how they impact us. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that because I I think this again is something that's underexplored, uh, misunderstood, and shows up in so many areas of our lives. It's not just you know, that the butterflies that you get when you're going for a new job and the hiring manager asks you how much you want to make. It, it, it's a lot deeper than that uh, and kind of yeah. you know, comes from a lot further back than I think a lot of people anticipate. Yeah. Uh,
1: I, I, I'll, I'll share two stories that illustrate this. One is from the book in which I talk about the poverty and shame of my childhood being mitigated somewhat when I would visit my grandfather, who was a successful in his way business person. He sold ice off the back of a truck in Brooklyn for 40 years. And he always had um, a canister, a tin of lemon drops, little sweet candies. And in my mind, I associated my grandfather's stability and safety with lemon drops and lemon drops became associated with having enough money. And then later on in my life, when I was out of alignment, it was partially because I was driven by the pursuit of lemon drops. I was not living into the safety that I could create. I was pursuing an external experience of that. And I think that that's Illustrative of a lot of our relationship with money. I know very, very few people who pursue money for its own sake. I know a lot of people who pursue money for safety. Yes. Now, there's a corollary to this, and this happened a few weeks ago. I was uh, doing a talk with uh, Dan Harris, who's a friend of mine, and um, he's the uh, weekend host of Good Morning America here in the United States, right, Uh, on um, ABC. And he was talking. He's also the author of 10% Happier, and he's co founder of a company named 10% Happier. And we were talking about childhood, and he made the he sort of quip because he's a very quippy kind of guy that he had an idyllic childhood. And then, in an offhand way, he talked about his parents, who were both physicians and therefore relatively well off, middle class certainly, um, who refused to turn the heat on during his New England winters to save money. And so we all laughed and said, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. And then as we were talking about that, we were also talking about the fact that when he first came to me for coaching, it was in part because he had three jobs, co-founder of 10% Happier, Weekend Anchor and Good Morning America, and Midweek Anchor, one of the anchors on ABC Nightline. And he was exhausted And he has a wife and a young son, and uh, he was struggling to see them. Three jobs. Yeah. Any one of which would be demanding. Okay. And so when we started to unpack what it was that he was driving him for those three jobs, it was fear of money. But he couldn't understand it because he grew up, quote, in an idyllic household, except that mom and dad wouldn't turn the heat on during the winter. So there was something about the loss or the potential loss of money that was sort of bubbling through the surface. And then, as we were talking, he said, "Really, out of the blue, first time in a year that I that I've known him," he said, "Well, do you, this might have something to do with my grandfather who killed himself." Hmm. Because what he had made the association with was the loss. What is that? But loss and the fear and the fearful trauma that reverberates throughout the entire family system right down to, well, maybe if we don't turn the heat on, everybody will stay safe, which then becomes maybe if I keep three jobs, everybody will be safe. Safe from what? Mm -hmm. Safe from the trauma of grandpa. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, it's, Cody, this is what happens. We don't, we're not handed a handbook of rules and regulations from the family that say, here's how life is supposed to be. It's passed down in an oral tradition. It's passed down. Like, so our relationship with money gets formed very, very early on. And our relationship with money then starts to define our relationship with work, because work for most people is the source of income. Mhm. And so if they come to a coach like me trying to understand and unpack their relationship to work, why am I so driven? I'll start to look at questions about safety and as it relates to money.
0: I have thought about this topic a lot as well and and you know, I think I wrote something on LinkedIn the other day was about of course everyone wants the promotion, we've linked the promotion to money. Mm. And so, of course, everyone wants to be a leader or a manager or wants to move up the corporate ladder because we've linked it to money. And so, you know, I think an interesting question, just talking about the idea of, uh, you know, uh, our relationship with money and, and how that applies to leadership in particular, I would be interested in who would take less money to become a leader. And, and actually invert the relationship that we have at the moment. And, mm-hmm. uh, and who would still put their hand up and say, I'll still do it. I'm not, yeah. saying, it's, I'm not saying it's a minimum wage job.
1: I, you know, let me encourage you to introduce an ancillary topic to your question. Let's do it. How much is enough? Mm-hmm. The whole concept of enough, I think, is an underexplored concept. I agree. I think that um, I have for the longest time felt that I have enough. And when I look at the numbers, I know that I have enough. And yet, occasionally, I still feel afraid. Like every time I fly back to New York where I grew up, I live in Boulder. Every time I fly back to New York where I grew up and I walk the streets of Manhattan and I look at that building, this townhouse, and I go, wow, that's wonderful. And I say, well, $9 million. And I'm like, wow. Well, I feel less <laughs> than, right? Um, and, and so I think it's a really intriguing notion. I mean, I talked about money and safety, but there's something very, very powerful about internalizing this notion of, am I enough? Do I have enough? Have I done enough? Am I enough to feel that at the end of my days... I'm proud of who I am. Uh, I'm so intrigued by this. I'll probably end up writing a book about it, but cause that's what I do. I try to find answers by writing books, um, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> but I think that there's a really rich area in the whole question of how much is enough for me?
0: I think that would be the most insightful if we were allowed the most insightful job interview question that you could ask someone and, and Mm -hmm. really dig into, and and this is the way I hope we can get going in our organizations is closer towards this and how can we set ourselves up for success and have honest conversations about this kind of thing. And, And even to the point where that conversation doesn't need to be about money. Like you said, you know, how much is enough could be, how much is enough work that I do so that I can get to see my kids at the end of the day Mm -hmm. and then, and then we can formulate employment around that person and, and what's enough for them rather than kind of this one size fits all methodology that we've plastered across everyone at the moment. You better be careful,
1: Cody. You're starting to sound like a socialist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, am, I am
0: in Canada. so. It's...
1: <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I'm joking, but, you know, what we're really going up against is a cultural uh, uh, belief system that more is better. Yes. And that bigger is better yeah and that uh newer is better than old and and you know, and I think what 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 you're experiencing is the limitations of that uh as the belief system. I think that it starts to um exacerbate sense of unworthiness that can really compel us It
0: would be remiss of me not to ask you about one of the core ideas in your book that you've come up with this idea of radical self inquiry. And Mm. uh, I want to talk to you about that because, um, we're we're running out of time here a little bit. Uh, I have my own perspective on this and, and you can probably pick up on that from our conversation already, but, I'd love, what is this idea? It's becoming radical everything right now. So <laughs> um, tell us where this came from and, and why it's such a core tenant of your
1: work at the moment and particularly your book. Yeah. So I'll break it down. Um, to me, it's the, it's the process by which um, the delusions and the self, the, the lies we tell ourselves are gently and compassionately stripped away. So we have no place to hide anymore. And that compassion is really important. It's radical because we tend not to do it. Mm -hmm. It's radical because it tends to be disruptive. And so the classic question that I ask goes like this. How have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? And let me break that question down further. Complicit not responsible, complicit, going along with, yeah. The conditions that I say I don't want. And that little move there is really important because it recognizes that we have a conscious expression of what we want. And then we have this really interesting unconscious expression of what we want. So for example, I say I don't want to be busy all the time, <laughs> but my ego loves When people are calling me or even more, I get really afraid if I'm not busy. So I complain all the time about being too busy, but I'm (laughs) complicit in creating that busyness. Right. And that little move that I just gave you, that's radical self-inquiry.
0: How can people start to really dig into this? They so ask themselves a question, and then how do they track what comes out? Where can they go? What can they, you know, we hear about journaling and all these different things that people can do. Simplify it for me. So I ask myself this question, and then what? What do I do with my well, miraculous the, the
1: sh- outcome? The, yeah, the sharing of the experience is really, really important. So talking about it with trusted folks is really, really key because getting it out of our head getting it out in the open and having dialogue and conversation about it can really loosen its grip on our, our behavior. Um, But it, it, it's false to think of it as a methodology that somehow leads to permanent transformation. Mm -hmm. It's really more of a practice. So for example um, let's say that I'm a leader and I have to fire an employee well, one way to think about this, to to, applica- to to apply this, would be to say, in what way was I complicit in that person's failure as an employee? Because I might have hired the wrong person from the very beginning, and what did I not pay attention to? that led me to hire the wrong person? Or what did I unconsciously seek when I was hiring this person? And that becomes a really interesting pathway for um, uh, inquiry.
0: I love that. I've been unknowingly doing this for quite some time. And I, I think I kind of shut off from the world for two or three days at a time usually. And I think it appears to be that I'm grumpy or in a mood, but Mm. really what I'm doing is I've identified something that's misaligned uh, in my life. Mm. And that process for me is where I've been able to uncover context. And so context about myself and it might be something that I want to do. It might be about a situation or even why I'm having particular thoughts about a particular Mm -hmm. thing. And Mm. I can, I've been able to, like you said, create a practice almost where i'm able to just be really still for two or three days and think and it appears like moping like i said but then i come out with action
1: i i think you're doing radical self-inquiry my friend
0: i think so too uh and i just i love the additional context that it adds Hmm. um to to everything and i'm a big believer in context there's People have read my book. There's chapters and chapters about what I call contextual leadership mm. and, and gathering contexts that uh, perhaps you don't think about. But, yeah, like you said, for, for me, that self-inquiry has been so helpful in so many different ways. Um, I never had the language for it like you do, so thank you for that. And, uh, and I'm certainly going to use your, your key question there as well. You're welcome. Uh, I know I've got to get you out of here, mate, but where can people find you and your book and the great
1: work that you do? Well, that's very kind of you to to ask. Rebootbyjerry.com. It's all about the book. And then Reboot.io is all about the company.
0: Wonderful, Jerry Colonna. I'm going to be out your way shortly. I hope you're in Boulder when I am. I'd love to have a coffee with you and um, we'll certainly be in touch. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Cody. You be well. Take care.